Welcome to Free Christian Church of God's Audio Outreach Ministries. For more information regarding the Audio Outreach Ministries or to order past messages, please contact the church office at area code 419-596-3103 or visit our website at www.freecog.org. And now, here's Reverend James Fry with today's message. Look your Bible here, say it with me. This is my Bible. It's God's infallible word. I am who it says I am. I have what it says I have, and I can do what it says I can do. Today, I'll be taught the word of God. I'm about to receive the incorruptible, indestructible, ever-living seed of the word of God. My mind is alert. My heart is receptive, and I'll never be the same in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, somebody asked, why do you do that every Sunday? Because one of these days, it's going to sink in. You repeat it every week when you come here, and sometimes you just, you just spit out words. You just read what's on the screen, or you just mumble something under your breath. But one of these days, it's going to hit you that this is God's infallible word. If you get hung up on that first sentence, you're going to have problems all the rest of the time. It is God's infallible word. The people who say that it isn't, it kind of amazes me how intelligent they must think they are. That they think they are so smart that they can point out the problems in the Bible. I believe it's God's infallible word. This is my only source of truth. This is it. This is it. And if it doesn't line up with this, I need to check out what I'm listening to because it isn't right. Matthew chapter 14, that wasn't a sermon, that was free. Matthew 14, we're going to start in verse 22. It says this, Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because of the wind against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said to Peter, Come, come. God, I pray for your anointing over your word today. God, I know that, that, it, that it will accomplish what you send it to do. God, whether we are prepared to receive it or not, God, I pray that you, your Holy Spirit will take this word, this powerful word, and God, that, that it will penetrate even the hardest hearts and the hardest minds. And God, that you might speak to us a word that we know is divine. Father, we pray your blessing over your word today in what it does and God, what it accomplishes. In Jesus' name, for his glory and for the building of your kingdom. We pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I'm going to open with this statement. I, I got up early uh, a couple of days ago, uh, very early. I, I had my plan. I was going to get up in the morning about maybe 7 o'clock or so, brew a pot of coffee, sit down, and I was going to study. God had different ideas because God does not sleep nor does he slumber. Woke me up in the middle of the night and said, you need to go do this now. And I wrote this down, and, and I want to open with this. It says, whatever you're going through right now, whatever you're dealing with that has you worn and afraid, I want you to know that your storm cannot stop him. 
Your storm cannot stop him. Now, I've preached from this passage many times over the years, but I never get tired of it. Uh, it doesn't bore me because every time I study it, God shows me something new, and then I want to tell you about it. I love my Bible. Even after 50 years of studying it, I'm not bored by it. I don't avoid it or make excuses as to why I can't study it because it is the most fascinating book that I've ever read. You really ought to read it sometime. The Bible is new every time I pick it up. God shows me things that I've not seen or understood before, and he exposes to me new truths uh, about things that I thought I already understood. If you want to grow in your faith, read your Bible. If you want to know what to do with your life, read your Bible. If you want to know what God's will is, if you are worried or afraid or confused, read your Bible. Read your Bible. God has given you all of the tools right here for everything that you'll face in life. The Bible is the only book in existence that is God-breathed. It is literally the breath of God. It contains many interesting narratives and themes. It, it records series and events that, and then catalogs them in a, a memorable structure. So that no matter how many times we read it, no matter how many times we hear from it, it is always refreshingly new. The Bible is always exciting and it is always an adventure. Only God could produce a book like that. You can take one topic and research it from Genesis to Revelation. And you can see how it all weaves together into the fabric of one divine story. Only God could write a book like that. You can take one word and follow it from the Old Testament through the New and watch it begin to harmonize in one glorious song. Only God could do that. The Bible was written by at least 36 different authors who wrote from three different continents while in many different countries in three languages, and yet it tells the same story. Only God could do that. The Bible contains 52 books, 22 historical, 5 poetical, 18 prophetical, 21 epistolary containing logical arguments and poetry and songs and hymns and history, uh, biography stories, parables, eloquence, law, letters, and philosophy, and yet it all points to just one God, our creator. Only God could do that. Only God could do that. Its authors were kings and farmers and mechanics and men of science and lawyers and generals and fishermen and ministers and tax collectors, a doctor, some rich, some poor, some city bred, and some were country boys whose experiences entail over 1,500 years, and yet it is never changing. Only God could put a book like that together. With that in mind, as I read the Bible, I find that I can't just read a passage of scriptures and then convince myself, well, that's all there is. I know that I'm not intelligent enough, nor am I deep enough or spiritual enough to get everything it has to offer all at once. I know that as big as God is and as small as I am in comparison to him, that there has to be more to it than what I'm reading. The Bible is more than a story. But it's a truth and reality which I have to pour myself into so I can grasp the very height and width and depth of what God is trying to tell me. Often when I'm pre preparing for a message, I find myself leaving my desk and walking into the scriptures until I'm surrounded by the story that's before me. When I read this text from Matthew 14, I leave my desk and I climb into the boat with the disciples as Jesus tells them to push out and sail to the other side. I smell the odor of the salty sea around me. I hear the sound of the seagulls as they fly over my head and the crashing of the waves as they pound against the side of the boat. 
I watch as the disciples do their sailing chores, pulling up the anchor and taking oars in hand and paddling out into deeper water and then raising the sail to catch the prevailing wind. I feel the peace and the quiet as the vessel cuts through the water toward its destination. All of my senses are engaged. But then I begin to sense the storm that's forming around us. I see the evening sky as it begins to change color. I hear the rumbling of the thunder, first at a distance and then closer and closer. I feel the gale of the winds and the pelting of the pouring rain on my shoulders. I'm in the story. But it's only then that I begin to understand the confidence that Peter must have had in Jesus. When in the storm he decided to leave the questionable security of the boat and step out by faith onto the water. I begin to understand the commitment that it took for Peter to go from where the others were afraid to go, to walk somewhere that no mortal man had ever walked before, to do something that 11 of his closest friends refused to do. And I'm moved, I'm stirred, I'm shaken in my faith as what began as just a few verses from my Bible becomes a living testament of Peter's faith in the power of God. Peter walked on the water. Have any of you ever walked on the water? I have just one time, but the lake was frozen. Even then, somebody cracked their knuckles, and I thought I was a goner. <laughs> this size, you do not walk on ice. I don't care how thick it is. The most unique walk of all time was taken by a man named Peter. On that night that he stepped out of his comfort zone and he walked on the water, it's an unforgettable walk, not because of where Peter was walking to, but because of what he was walking on and who he was walking with. As I grow older, I'm learning that sometimes the reward of the journey is the journey itself. I, I am a goal-oriented person, point A to point B. You go with me on vacation, if it took us 10 hours the first time to get there, I'm shoot for 9 hours and 45 minutes the next time. You know, can we stop there? You know, that, that sort of thing. I need to use the restroom, you know, you know things like that. But I'm learning as I get older that the reward of the journey is the journey itself. It's not our destination, but it's how we get there and who goes with us along the way. We are so goal-oriented that, that often we become so fixated on the end result that we miss the wonderful things that God has strategically placed for us along the way. So often the reward of the journey is the journey itself, but we miss it because we're looking too far ahead. Jesus had just finished preaching. He was healing the sick, feeding over 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. It was a marquee moment in the Bible. We're told that the crowd was so impressed and so moved by what they had witnessed, the Gospel of John tells us that they wanted to immediately make Jesus king by force. It wasn't time yet for Jesus to be king. And when he would reign as king, it wasn't going to be over an earthly kingdom, but the people didn't understand that. They didn't understand Jesus' mission. I'm sh not sure that they even cared about Jesus' mission. They were thinking like many people do today. They wanted Jesus to be a political leader. They wanted him to be a military leader, but that would be a demotion when you're already the king of kings. They wanted to rush the process. They wanted the destination without the journey. 
They wanted a king without a savior, a crown without a cross, and a victory without a resurrection. But that's the mindset of the world. We want God to set up his kingdom. We pray for God to set up his kingdom. We want his will to be done, but ultimately, we just want our will to be done. We want God's kingdom to be run with an earthly mindset. We're willing to give him the throne so long as we can retain the authority to tell him what to do with it. We'll allow God to serve us as king so long as he serves us. You see, we want God to be an earthly God. We want him to give us money when we want something. We want him to heal us when we're sick. We want him to protect us when we're being persecuted and to deliver us when we're in trouble. We want God to wow us and to impress us. We want him to show us a sign or to give us a miracle, but we don't want him to deal with our sinfulness. We refuse to talk about holiness. We don't want to hear about dying out to the world and resurrecting in the image of Christ. We want the benefits without the commitment. We seek a sign of his divine power and try to force him to be our king instead of surrendering to him as our savior. We want to lead in the church but not follow in the spirit. We want to command without committing. We want to govern but not give. We want to be a spiritual leader without being a spirit follower. I was speaking with my brother last night. My brother has stage four cancer, and he just went through a, a horrible reaction to one of his treatments where all of the organs in his body became inflamed, and he nearly died had he not got to the hospital. He wouldn't have made it. He was in a hospital over two weeks, went home a little bit too soon, and ended up back in the hospital with blood clots in his lungs. He's on oxygen 24 hours a day. And as I spoke to him on the phone, he was weak. His voice was weak, but he's still my brother. And he's still a preacher. He said, I'm at the place in my life where I'm going to tell people the truth whether they like me or hate me. And I said, you know what? So am I. So am I. I, I will be 65 shortly, and, and I am in that retirement mode. But I'll tell you one thing. I'm going to tell you the truth whether you like it or not. I'm going to preach the truth whether you like it or not. I'm going to preach it whether it steps on your toes or not. I'm going to preach it whether you love it or hate it. But you are not going to die and enter eternity without knowing the facts. You're not going to blame me. You're not going to blame me. When Jesus saw that the crowd wasn't interested in a relationship with him, but they were only interested in what he could do for them, the Bible says he pronounced the benediction, closed the service, and walked away. The miracle ceased. Nobody was healed. Nobody else was fed. When selfishness stepped in, Jesus stepped out. And when Jesus stepped out, everything that he was doing went with him. Listen to me, church. God didn't come here today to serve you. He's not here to impress you or to relieve you or to bow to your demands. He's not here to fix your problems or to make you rich, but he's here for a relationship with you. If you don't want a relationship with him, then don't expect the benefits of being his child. You can't have what Jesus offers without serving him as your Savior because he will pronounce the benediction on your life and walk away and leave you standing alone. There are no shortcuts. You can't get the good of God without the Spirit of God. He's not the lottery. He's not the welfare department. He's not the bail bondsman who will pay to get you out when your sin has you locked up. He's not a quick fix or an emergency exit. 
God won't compromise who he is for your convenience because when he sees it, you don't want to know him. But the only thing that you're interested in is what you can get from him. He will pronounce the benediction, close the service, and walk away and leave you right where you are. The Bible says that it was at this time that Jesus constrained the disciples to get into a ship and to leave where they were. God knows that sometimes you just have to get out. He knows that sometimes you have to walk away. Sometimes you have to run away. You don't need to stick around and fight. You don't need to straighten everybody out. You just need to walk away. Jesus told disciples, get away from here. Get away from these bad ideas. Get away from the influence of these people who are trying to interrupt my mission and get on a boat and sail to the other side of the sea. Run from the opinions and the ideals of this world and get on the old ship of Zion and flee as far away as you can. Don't get caught up in a debate. Don't be distracted by the enemy. Don't get wrapped up in whose side are you on or who do you follow or what can you do for me, but flee the mindset of the world. I met with a man this week who had something happen at his church, and he was wondering how to handle it. So he came to me for advice. <laughs> yeah, go figure. <laughs> the devil's very good at distracting us from our mission. I see this in church people all the time. You, you see churches that are having little, little, little fires, you know, little brush fires here and there because somebody forgot why we're here. But the devil's good at distracting us. He'll throw something in our path. And our first gut reaction is to deal with it, to fight it or to fix it. But while we're spending time on that distraction, we're losing time on our mission. I told him in the ministry, you only have one job. And that one job is to save those who are lost. You're not a lawyer, you're not a judge, you're not a police officer, but you are a minister of the gospel, and your job is to rescue those who are headed for hell. The lost is lost. It doesn't matter if a man comes into your church wearing a dress. <laughs> that was his problem. A three-piece suit or a leather motorcycle jacket. Loss is lost. It doesn't matter if they're gay or straight, drug addict, or a businessman. Lost is lost. Your mission is not to fix them, but to lead them to Jesus who can save their soul. Somebody shout amen. That is our job. That's our job. That's our job. Man said, I don't know what to do. Guy came into our church, and he dressed like a woman. Well, I'd probably laugh first because it catches me off guard. He said, oh, just... It's just, it's just rubbing me. I don't know what to do. I said, well, he's expecting you to reject him. That's why I came that way. He wants to show everybody what the church is. He wants to expose you. I said, but what you need to do is become his best friend. <sighs> now, I'm not saying you run around with him to the gay bar. What I'm saying is... Yeah, don't, yeah, if you wrote that down, erase it, okay? <laughs> what I'm saying is, talk to him. Talk to him. Don't be afraid. Lost is lost. Lost is lost. Doesn't matter what costume you got on. Lost is lost. Too many of God's people have been distracted from the mission because they've been caught up in the wrong things. 
They're caught up in politics. They're caught up in the stock market. They're caught up in wars and terrorism and a hundred other things. They're worrying about issues that God already has in the palm of his hand. One man told me that he was doing everything he could to save our country. He said, I bought the pillows, signed up for the Medicare hotline, reverse mortgaged my house, and I bought a MAGA hat. <laughs> Church, that's not our mission. Our mission is clear, and we can't allow anybody or anything to distract us. Some of you not find that funny because you did all those things, right? <laughs> There's an epidemic in the church today. It is the plague of prosperity thinking. We've been conditioned to believe that if we have enough faith and apply a formula that we can get from God whatever we want to appease our flesh. We've been told that as God's children, he intends for us to be rich and healthy and our life to be problem-free. We approach the throne of God with a sense of entitlement. Convinced that God is here to serve us, but it is a distraction to our mission, our flesh-oriented mindset that is focused on the trivial rather than on the eternal. Jesus said, flee. Get on the boat and get out of here. When you hear preaching and teaching that centers on your benefits instead of your service, walk away. When you hear preaching that offers rewards without commitment, walk away. When you hear teaching that tells you that God, all that God can do for you without you doing anything for him, walk away. There are times when you have to just walk away. As a pastor, I've had to learn to discern the difference between someone who desires a relationship with God and someone who only seeks the benefits that God can provide. As a church, we have to discern between those who are seeking God and those who are only seeking welfare. Our time is too precious and our resources are too valuable to waste on those who aren't looking for a Savior. There are times when we have to pronounce the benediction and walk away. Jesus told his disciples to meet him on the other side of the sea. Now, at that time in history, there was only one means of transportation that came to mind. Walking around the sea would have taken way too much time and too much effort, and it was too far to swim and too deep to, to tread. So boating was the only reasonable choice. But I find it intriguing that the Bible says Jesus compelled them to get in the boat. He forced them to get in the boat. Now, at first, that didn't make any sense to me. I mean, how else was they going to get to where he wanted them to go? And then I got to thinking, if, if God's a God of walking on the water, why didn't he, why did he even make the disciples get on a boat? Why didn't he just, just tell them to start hoofing it across to the other side? If Jesus would have said to his disciples, just walk on the water to the other side of the lake, they would have missed the value of the lesson that he was about to reveal to them. The reward of the journey is the journey itself. If God gives you something without effort and without sacrifice and without faith, if he gives it to us without challenge and without struggle, if we can get it on our own without God's help, we will miss the value of his work. Sometimes it's best to do it the hard way. We have our own way of doing things. We have a method, we have a technique, we have an opinion, and we wouldn't dream of doing things any other way. We'll say, well, this is the way we've always done it. It's our, it's our custom. It is, it's our tradition. Mom and dad did it this way. Grandma and grandpa did it this way. And this is how it shall be done. And that's how we do it. Many churches, many believers today are going nowhere because they're stuck in their dead-end traditions. They're going to do what they've always done. But nobody ever wants to talk about how good it works. We're going to have our yearly homecoming service. Everybody come again. But is it building the kingdom of God? 
is it just a big church party or is it changing your community? Are you having fun or are people getting saved? We're going to have our yearly revival. Hey, if your church is in such bad shape that it needs to be revived every year, maybe you ought to unplug the life support and let it die. Jesus didn't debate about his disciples about what they were to do. He didn't try to persuade them, but the Bible says he made them get into the boat because it was time for them to cross over. He made them cross over the sea their way in their boat because he was about to show them how ineffectual their way was. Sometimes God will allow us or even persuade us to do things our way so he could teach us just how ineffective our way is without him. Now, here is the interesting part of this story. In those days, many fishermen built their own boats. They gathered the wood, and they hewed the planks and formed the beams. They drilled the holes and pinned it together. They sealed it with pitch inside and out to make it seaworthy. They sewed the sails, and they knew what their boat could do. But they also knew what their boat could not do. They knew their boat's strengths and its weaknesses. They knew about the days when they did excellent work. But they also knew about the times when they got lazy and did a poor job. They knew about the high-quality materials that they had invested in, but they also knew about the cheap bargain stuff that they used instead of what the job called for. They knew their boat. They knew what it could do, and they knew what it could not do. They were pretty sure that their boat could sail on a clear day. They knew that it could handle the small waves. They knew that it could carry the weight of a few men, but they weren't sure of what their boat could do in a storm. They were uncertain of how it would withstand the heavy wind and the driving rain. They didn't know if it could safely carry 12 passengers across the raging sea. And that's why when the storm arose, they grew afraid for their very lives because they knew their boat. You know your boat. You know your boat. You built your boat. You know how it's been made. You know what your boat is made made up of. It's been made of your opinions. Well, I think I'm good enough. I don't have to believe everything the preacher says. So you never really got saved. You play church. Your boat's made of your crusty old ritual that you did years ago. Well, I was baptized when I was a baby, or I took communion uh, once, and I, or I went to that altar one time when I was a teenager, but you've never repented of your sin, and you've never changed, and you know that when it's time to cross over, your boat is not going to be good enough. It's not going to be good enough. You sit in church week after week. You hear the gospel preached, but you do not respond to it. You're sticking with your boat. Looks good when you're pulling it behind your truck. Your friends will look at you and say, man, look at this boat. Look at her boat. That, that's a nice one. I should like to have one like that. Your boat looks good when it's tied to the dock and you have the music playing and there's a party going on. But you know that when God tells you it's time to cross over, your boat is not going to make it. When it's your time to cross over, you're going to ask somebody for a Bible to read. When it's your time to cross over, you're going to ask the church to put you on the prayer chain. When it comes time for you to cross over, you're going to tell somebody, call the pastor, because you know that your boat is not going to make it. Your boat is whatever you presented safety and security to you apart from God himself. Your boat is what you put your trust in. Your boat is what has pulled you away from the high adventure of being a disciple of Christ. Your boat is what has kept you from stepping out in faith, but your boat is the one thing that will keep you from walking on the water. There's going to come a day when your boat isn't going to do you any good. You know your boat. 
You know that your faith has never been real. You know that you've been faking it for years. You played church and played religion, and you might have people fooled, but you don't have God fooled. God knows your heart. He knows what your boat is made of and how it was made, and there's coming a day when it's your time to cross over that your boat is going to be put to the test. As they set sail, the word says that a storm arose. The devil's not going to make life easy for you. He's not going to make your journey easier. There will be storms. The winds will blow. The rains will come down, and you're not going to be able to stop them. There are going to be trials, and there are going to be money problems and sicknesses and conflicts and struggles. There will be storms. Maybe you're fortunate enough that you haven't sailed through one yet, but there's a storm coming that's going to test your boat. Mark tells us that in the middle of the storm, Jesus came walking on the water, and he intended to pass them by. I didn't quite grasp this at first either. Jesus knew where they were. He knew that they were in danger. He knew that they needed his help, but he intended to pass them by because he also knew how this story was going to end. Jesus intended to pass them by, but somebody saw him. Dale Bruner writes, Human extremity is the frequent meeting place with God. Those divinely appointed defining moments will come to you and me, and it's in those moments that God will ask us to do extraordinary things. But if we're not looking for him, we just might miss him. Jesus isn't going to hang around. He's not going to circle and come back again. But it's a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You take it or you lose it. You get it or it goes away because Jesus is just passing by, and you have to seize the opportunity to get to him. Somebody saw Jesus. It was 3 o'clock in the morning. It was dark, and it was stormy, but thank God somebody had sense enough to be looking for Jesus in the middle of it. Whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're going through, your storm can't stop him. Jesus is in the middle of your storm, and he's passing by your way. If you're not looking for him, you might miss him. If you're distracted by the storm, and you're in a panic, and you're looking for your life jacket and your flare gun, you just might miss him. If you're worried about your boat, and you're trying to patch it up and hold it together, you just might miss him. It was 3 o'clock in the morning, and it was storming. But thank God, out of 12 people in the boat that night, somebody had sense enough to know we might be in the middle of a storm, but I know that Jesus has to be around here somewhere. You're in a storm, but Jesus is around here somewhere. Hallelujah. I know the test results are bad, but Jesus has to be around here somewhere. I know that we don't have enough money, but Jesus has to be around here somewhere. I know that we don't have the means to pull it off, and it looks like we're going to lose. I know the experts say that it can't be done, and everybody's telling me to quit because it's over, but Jesus has to be around here somewhere. Somebody saw him. Somebody who was looking for him saw him, and at first they thought it was a ghost. Why would they think that? Why didn't they think it was like a big fish or another boat or a big bird flying over? Why did their mind go straight to ghost? Well, why is it when somebody sees something in the sky they can't identify, they believe it's a flying saucer from outer space? Why is it when somebody sees a shadow in the woods, they think it's Bigfoot? Why is it when somebody hears a bump in the middle of the night, they think it's the boogeyman coming to get them? We are predisposed to negative thought. 
It's our fallen nature at its finest. We're in the middle of a storm, and the first thing that we think about is death, and the last thing we think about is God. The disciples didn't recognize Jesus. But how could they not recognize him? How could they not know who Jesus was? Who else would it be? Who else did they know that could walk on water? See, you don't spend enough time digesting the scriptures. There's a lot more here when you pay attention. After Peter spotted Jesus, it was then that they all saw him and they all heard his voice. Now pay attention here. They were all in the same boat. They all saw the same thing. They all heard the same words when Jesus spoke, but Peter was the only person in the boat that responded to him. You see these commercials, you know, don't be like so-and-so. Well, don't be like everybody else in your boat. People in your boat might be seasick and pale-faced and puking over the side, but don't be like everybody else in your boat. They all saw Jesus. They all heard Jesus, but Peter was the only one in the boat who responded to Jesus, and what Peter said to Jesus was profound. He said, Lord, if it's you, then command me to come to you on the water. Somehow, and I'm ashamed to admit it, but I don't think that's what I would have done. But you can't condemn me because I'm pretty sure it isn't what you would have done either. We would have said, Lord, if it's you, show me a sign. Oh, Jesus, if it's you, stop this storm. Lord, if it's you, get us out of this mess and put us safely on the shore. Am I right? That's what we would have done. God, if you're in this storm, if you really hear and you really care, then make everything right. Heal the sickness. Give me the money. Help us to win. But Peter didn't do any of that. Peter said, Lord, if it's you, then command me to do something. Command me to do something that I can't do on my own. Peter was experiencing a divine moment. Maybe Peter was falling under the anointing. Maybe, maybe Peter's faith was welling up so much inside of him that it just needed to get out or he would explode. Or maybe, just maybe, it was Peter's boat. Y'all can stay in the boat if you want to, but I'm going somewhere else. When the guy that built the boat wants to get out of the boat in the middle of a storm, you better follow him. What well, better evidence of the power and the presence of God than for God to do something through you that you know you can't do on your own? Instead of asking God to do something for you, why not ask God to do something through you? Now listen to this. There is more to life than just sitting in your boat and worrying about your storm. I think I need to repeat that. There is more to this life than just sitting in your boat and worrying about your storm. Larry Lawden and I've told you this before, I'm going to tell it again. He's a philosopher of science. He spent the last decade studying risk management. He writes that we live in a society so fear-driven that we suffer from what he calls risk lock. It's a gridlock that leaves us unable to do anything or to go anywhere. We've seen a lot of this in the last three years. COVID-19 has shut down the lives of many people. Our whole world has changed in the last two or three years. But Loudon summarizes his study in 19 principles. The first principle is the simplest. He says everything is risky. If you're looking for absolute safety, you shouldn't have been born. You can stay at home in bed, but that may make you one of a half million Americans who require emergency room treatment each year for injuries sustained while falling out of bed. 
You can cover your windows, but that may make you one of the 10,000 people a year who accidentally hang themselves on the cords of their Venetian blinds. You can hide your money in a mattress, but that might make you one of the tens of thousands of people who go to the emergency room every year with wounds caused by handling money. Everything from paper cuts to hernias, depending on how much you have. You can live on bland food so as to avoid an ulcer, drink no caffeine or other stimulants in the name of health, go to bed early, stay away from nightlife, avoid all controversial subjects so as never to offend anybody, mind your own business, avoid involvement in other people's problems, spend money only on the necessities of life and save all you can, but still break your neck in the bathtub and it will serve you right because everything is risky. I like that. If you step up to the plate, you might strike out. The greatest hitters in the major leagues fail two times out of every three at-bats. But if you don't step up to the plate, you'll never know the glory of what it is to hit a home run. I want you to notice that Peter didn't just jump into the water. Faith isn't some radical move in the face of reason. Faith isn't a blind leap into danger. But faith is being able to discern between an authentic call from God and a foolish impulse. I've often said there's a thin line between faith and stupidity, and there be many who cross it. Before Peter ever got out of the boat, he first asked Jesus if it was the right thing to do. And Jesus said to him, come on. Now, I'm still looking at this thing and thinking, what if it really wasn't Jesus? And whoever was telling Peter to get out of the boat did so so that Peter would drown. There must have been something in that voice. It was so distinct and so recognizable that Peter knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that it was Jesus. You see, when you spend enough time with Jesus, you'll be able to discern his voice from everybody else. Jesus said in John 10, my sheep know my voice. They know my voice. Peter spent enough time with Jesus that he recognized his voice and he trusted Jesus enough that even if he did what Jesus told him to do and he drowned, he would be drowning in the will of God and everything would be okay. That is some kind of faith. That is some kind of faith. It was at that moment that Peter had to pass through faithlessness. And I've covered this with you before. Peter was the only disciple in the boat that got it. The rest of the disciples were still clinging to their seats and clutching their life jackets and riding their wheels, saying their goodbyes. But Peter was going, excuse me, I need to get through here. I got to get out of this boat. Excuse me. James and John was trying to keep the boat afloat. Peter's going, excuse me. Matthew was going over the books trying to get all those figures straight, and Peter's going, excuse me. Judas was trying to see if he could get the bag of money to float, and Peter's going, excuse me, I've got to get out of here. You don't need your boat. You need Jesus. Your boat isn't going to make it. You need Jesus. Your boat is going to fail you. You need Jesus. Now, before I finish, I want you to put yourself in this story. Picture in your mind how violent this storm must have been if it was strong enough to make professionals struggle just to avoid being capsized. Imagine the height of the waves and the power of the wind and picture in your mind the darkness of the night. These were the conditions under which Peter was going to get out of the boat. Sometimes we can't even step out in faith when the water's calm and the air is still and the sun is shining. Imagine trying to do it when the waves are crashing and the wind is a gale force and it's 3 o'clock in the morning. Put yourself in Peter's place. You're seeing what nobody else can see. You have insight into what Jesus is doing, and you understand that he's passing by just this one time. 
and he's inviting you to go with him on this adventure of a lifetime, what would you choose, the raging sea or your boat? If you get out of the boat, there are no guarantees. It's all faith after that. If you step away from your religion or your traditions, it's all faith. If you step away from the life that you've been living, it's all faith. If you let go of your sin, it's all about faith. You don't know if you're going to survive. You have no idea what's going to happen next. The water is rough, the waves are high, the wind is strong, and if you get out of your boat, you might drown. But if you don't get out of the boat, there's a guaranteed certainty that you'll never walk on the water. An immutable law of nature is if you want to walk on water, you have to get out of your boat. I believe today that there's something, there's something inside of you telling you that there has to be more to this life than just sitting in this boat. The Holy Spirit inside of you is telling you that it's time to stand up and move forward. It's time to leave the insecurity of your homemade ideas and principles and take a step of faith. Your boat's not going to get you to where God wants you to go, but where God wants you to go can only be reached by faith. Until you leave your boat behind, it can't happen. Some of you have been riding in a rickety old death trap for years. Your boat's a piece of junk, and you know it. You decorate it, you try to make it presentable, but you know how your boat was made because you made it. You know that when it's your time to cross over, you're not going to make it. You know that when the storm comes, your boat isn't going to survive. So this morning, why don't you just leave it behind? Say, excuse me. Walk through the faithlessness that's holding you back. Step out in faith and come to Jesus. Father, I thank you today for your word and God, just the power of the word. Lord, it's so alive. It is so alive. When we put ourselves into the story, our senses get involved. We can see and hear and feel. That's reality. And Lord, I believe that's what you want us to have. You want us to live in the reality of the moment. And God, to look down at that boat that we've made that we call our life, and admit there's not enough there to survive. Father, today I pray that those here that you're speaking to will step out in faith. God, they will step out in faith to somewhere they've never been before and trust you. Trust you instead of trusting that old boat. Father, have your will in the rest of this service. In Jesus' name. You have been listening to Rev. James Fry from Free Christian Church of God in Continental Ohio. We hope you have enjoyed today's message, and we would like to invite you to visit us next Sunday morning. Our Sunday morning services begin with Sunday school at 9.30, followed by the worship service at 10.30. Free Christian Church of God is located on the corner of State Route 15 and State Route 634, just north of Continental. For more information regarding this or other ministries, call the church office at area code 419-596-3103 or visit our website at www.freecog.org. This has been a Free Christian Church of God audio outreach ministries production.